You're listening to audio from christian.org.uk, the website of the Christian Institute. You can find hundreds more audio files at christian.org.uk. Oliver Cromwell remains a figure of compelling fascination and neutrality is impossible. In just the same way that many English people automatically take sides over the university boat race as though they were genetically programmed to favour either Oxford or Cambridge, the civil wars of the 1640s evoke a similar response. English people have instinctive sympathies, either for king or parliament, cavalier or roundhead, Anglican or Puritan, Charles I or Oliver Cromwell. To some, Cromwell will always be the despoiler of churches, the ogre who hounded the saintly Charles I to his death. In Ireland, for instance, he has become a monster of almost mythical proportions. Whereas to others, he will always be the no-nonsense soldier and statesman who exemplified his own belief that nobility has more to do with character than birthright, the champion of limited constitutional government and liberty of conscience. It's all the more remarkable then to reflect that only the final third of his life was spent as a public figure. And the first two-thirds were spent as an impecunious gentleman farmer on the edge of the Fen country in East Anglia. Now, because of that, during his own lifetime, his admirers thought of him as England's David, a man prepared for great things during a lengthy apprenticeship in comparative obscurity. And that's how I'd like to begin. Our first heading this evening will be England's David, and we're looking at the first two-thirds of his life. We'll begin with the date of his birth, 1599, and take things up to the year 1642, and the outbreak of the Civil War. Oliver was born then on the 25th of April, 1599, in the early hours of the morning to Robert and Elizabeth Cromwell in the town of Huntingdon. He was one of ten children. And by the way, uh, for those of you who like to think about omens, uh, in later life his royalist enemies used to say that the room in which he was born had a a portrait of the devil on one wall uh, and that had a strong influence on the man that he later became. You can make what you will of that. Seven of the ten children survived to adulthood. He was the only boy, so he grew up in a a family full of sisters. Well, another rumour, by the way, concerning his childhood, uh, is to do with the fact that his mother's maiden name was Steward. She was Elizabeth Steward, with a D on the end. That was the original spelling of the royal surname Stuart, 
And at one time, the idea was touted that Oliver might have been a distant relative of the king whose nemesis he eventually became. Now, this rumour was based on a fabricated story that a Scottish prince had once been shipwrecked on the coast of Norfolk, allegedly in 1406. In point of fact, there's no foundation at all in that. Uh, Elizabeth was not descended from the stewards of Scotland, um, later the Stuarts, of course, but from the Stywards, a merchant family of Calais. The Cromwells then were minor nobility, though Oliver was born into the junior branch of the family and was very much in the shadow of the family patriarch, Oliver's uncle, Sir Oliver Cromwell, whose seat was the palatial manor of Hinchingbrook, and it's likely, in fact, that the young Oliver was named after this uncle, who was also his godfather. Sir Oliver was eventually to beggar himself by offering lavish hospitality on several occasions to King James I. Now, King James I was, of course, James VI of Scotland, and as he was making his way down to London to lay claim to his throne as the new King of England, um, there's a long-standing uh, story that there at Hinchingbrook Manor, it's very close to the line of what's now the A1, uh, that the young Oliver met the son of King James VI and I, and that the two boys met, got into a tussle, and the future Lord Protector bloodied the nose of the future king. Well, you can make what you will of that. Uh, there's another story, um, I can certainly remember it, in the old Ladybird books, if you can remember those, that once the young Oliver actually got onto the roof of Hinchingbrook Manor and was rescued by the family pet monkey. <laughs> Going further back, one of Cromwell's paternal ancestors was a Welshman, a certain Morgan Williams, one of those intrepid Welshmen who hoped to better themselves in England following the Welsh monarch, Henry VII, the first Tudor king, into England. In due course, this Morgan Williams was to marry a certain Catherine Cromwell, sister to Henry VIII's Chancellor, Thomas Cromwell. Now, as her surname was more illustrious than his, he cheerfully adopted his wife's surname. Now, a Celtic strand in Oliver's ancestry, may help to explain a measure of emotional intensity which is perhaps unusual in an Englishman. Uh, at any rate, he grew up in Huntingdon against the backdrop of a family that was struggling to maintain its position in the social order and which was in danger of slipping back into the artisan class. There was a modest farm and a family brewery in Huntingdon but neither of these enterprises flourished. And Cromwell's own reflection on his early years was this, I was by birth a gentleman. That didn't mean that he was courteous and kind and pleasant to be with. It was a statement about his social class. Living neither in any considerable height nor yet in obscurity. Now his situation was actually more precarious than that might suggest. There was a power struggle in Huntingdon in the late 1620s and the Cromwell interest was worsted. 
In the year 1627, the family patriarch, Sir Oliver, because of all this lavish expenditure entertaining royals, was forced to sell his splendid manor at Hinchingbrook to the Montague family, and he retired to a more modest property at Ramsey. And with this reverse, his influence waned, the stock of the Montague family rose, and things came to a head when the corporation of Huntingdon was divided over a bequest of £2,000 left to the town by a merchant named Richard Fishbourne. It was intended that a proportion of this bequest should be used to endow a preaching lectureship. This was a common Puritan practice at that time. It was a way of bypassing the church structure of the day. If the bishop had appointed to the living of your parish a minister who was not an evangelical uh, and you couldn't stand his, his preaching, then if you were wealthy enough, you could pay a minister uh, that you would call a, a lecturer who would simply preach the gospel and not wear clerical vestments and have to uh, obey the bishop and that sort of thing. Now, the Montague's favoured candidate for this lectureship was Dr. Thomas Beard, who was the author of a book called The Theatre of God's Judgments. This man has usually been portrayed as a simple, devout Puritan schoolmaster, but a recent reappraisal suggests that he was in fact a greedy pluralist. And the dispute was only resolved by direct intervention from the Crown, which resulted in a new charter for the borough and the exclusion of Oliver Cromwell from the body of aldermen of the town. And the Cromwell stock had sunk so low that in 1631 he sold the house in which he'd been born and took on the tenancy of a farm in nearby St Ives. And he was never financially secure until the death of his maternal uncle, Sir Thomas Steward, in 1636, when he finally inherited his uncle's estates in Ely. Now, later on, as a promising commander of cavalry, Cromwell developed a policy of recruiting a type of person that he was to call a plain russet-coated captain. By this, he simply meant people like himself. It's telling that in later life, when explaining his approach to the government of a whole nation, Cromwell did not compare himself to a justice of the peace, but actually to a parish constable. He was, however, whatever one might say about his economic circumstances, born and raised in the heartland of English Puritanism. He attended the grammar school in Huntingdon, followed by a brief spell at Sydney Sussex College at Cambridge, which was then essentially a seminary for training Puritan ministers. He gave early evidence of a lifelong boisterous streak when he mounted his horse from a first-floor window above Sydney Street. He left Cambridge on the death of his father in 1617, and there's a persistent tradition that he had a brief period at Lincoln's Inn in London, but there's no concrete proof that he was ever actually there. A key event was his marriage in August 1620 to Elizabeth Borchia at St Giles Cripplegate. At 23, she was two years older than he was and from a slightly more prosperous family. Evidently, she was a pretty girl. 
At any rate, Oliver's favourite daughter, Betty, was the one who looked most like her mother. Not a natural extrovert, Elizabeth had hidden depths to her personality, and during the protectorate, by now an overweight matriarch, she became the butt of royalist satire, but Oliver remained devoted to her for over 30 years of marriage, and she to him. And even when his life was at its most crowded, amid the frantic bustle of military campaigns, he took time to write affectionate little notes to her. After 31 years together, he could write, My dearest, I could not satisfy to omit this post, although I have not much to write. Yet indeed I love to write to my dear, who is very much in my heart. And the morning after his greatest victory at Dunbar, he wrote, Thou art dearer to me than any creature, by which he meant created being. She, for her part, was to write, Truly, my life is but half a life in your absence. Marriage, by the way, appears to have calmed him down. Uh, He had a wild streak during his youth, though in later life he was rather apt to paint his pre-conversion days in more lurid colours than he need have done. That's not unusual, is it? I mean, uh, evangelical people have a way of sometimes describing what they were like before they became Christians in somewhat more uh, striking tones than they really need do. Uh, As a boy, he was nicknamed the Apple Dragon for his habit of raiding orchards. Uh, If anything, he was always a country boy at heart for the rest of his days, enjoying strenuous physical activity, always glad of time to follow the rural sports of his day. He relished hunting, whether with hawk or hounds, and he couldn't always suppress a liking for rumbustious horseplay. In later years, he would sometimes find release from the tensions of council meetings by hurling cushions at the heads of his colleagues or engaging in playful bouts of wrestling. If you could imagine uh, the present Prime Minister... um, (laughs) grappling with the other members of the cabinet, um, putting an arm lock, for instance, on David Miliband or something of that kind. At some point between 1628 and 1636, we can't be sure exactly when, Oliver underwent an evangelical conversion. He went through a period of intense depression, even seeking the help of a noted London doctor, Sir Theodore Mayon who recorded that he found him extremely melancholy. It's probable that this was the profound conviction of personal sin and guilt common to those on the brink of conversion to Christ. One formative influence, probably during his years in St. Ives, was Dr. Walter Wells, the lecturer in nearby Godmanchester. Writing in 1636 to his very good friend Mr. Storey, at the sign of the dog in the Royal Exchange, Cromwell described this man in glowing terms. A man for goodness and industry and ability to do good every way, not short of any I know in England. And I'm persuaded that since his coming, the Lord hath by him wrought much good among us. At any rate, he eventually arrived at a stable assurance of salvation. It's interesting to observe his reaction to the death of his oldest son, Robert, a promising, godly boy of 17 in 1639. He quoted St. Paul, and that's the reason why I requested 
the passage that was read to us just now. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be debased and how to abound. I can do all things through Christ that strengtheneth me. And he was to say in later life that Robert's death had been like a dagger through his heart, but that that scripture had saved his life. It's no easy matter, by the way, to assess Cromwell's inner life. He does not seem to have kept a diary or a commonplace book. That was a a fairly common Puritan practice, just to keep a a blank book where you jotted down uh, things that um, you found helpful spiritually, Um, perhaps notes about sermons that you'd enjoyed or verses of scripture or any spiritual reading that had been particularly moving. Or if he did keep any records like that, they've not survived. So from a man who must have heard hundreds, if not thousands of sermons, we have nothing at all from his pen as to the identities of his favorite preachers. And given that he lived at a time when England was favored with a galaxy of preaching talent, this is very frustrating. In the same way, there's an almost complete absence of any comment, favorable or otherwise, about particular sermons. We do not know which exhortations moved his passionate soul, which words of comfort gave him new heart, or for that matter, which observations from any preacher annoyed him or left him flat. He lived at a time when there was a growing body of exegetical and devotional literature, but we don't know which his favorite spiritual authors were, if indeed he had any. He was not a bookish man, though he had a lifelong attachment to Sir Walter Raleigh's History of the World. The best clue to the spiritual maturity that developed over time is actually his letters to his children. On the 25th of October, 1646, he wrote to his daughter Bridget, who'd been married in the January of that year to Henry Ireton. Dear daughter, I write not to thy husband, partly to avoid trouble, for one line of mine begets many of his, (laughs) which I doubt makes him sit up too late, and then he gets down to business. Whoever tasted that the Lord is gracious without some sense of self, vanity, and badness? Whoever tasted that graciousness of his and could go on less in desire, less pressing after full enjoyment? Dear heart, press on. Let not thy husband, let not anything cool thy affections after Christ. I hope he, thy husband, will be an occasion to inflame them. That which is best worthy of love in thy husband is that of the image of Christ he bears. Look on that, and love it best, and all the rest for that. I pray for thee and him, do so for me. Now, Ireton was to die of plague in November 1651 while he was on duty in Ireland, and Bridget married again. Cromwell wrote to her new husband, Charles Fleetwood, in a way that suggests that he understood both the variety of Christian experience and his daughter. She was naturally fretful and troubled about her assurance of salvation. So he said this to husband number two. 
salute your dear wife from me and bid her beware of a bondage spirit. Fear is the natural issue of such a spirit. The antidote is love. The voice of fear is, if I had done this, if I had avoided that, how well it had been with me. I know this hath been her vain way of reasoning. Love argueth in this wise. What a Christ have I. What a Father in and through him. What a name hath my Father. Merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. What a nature hath my Father. He is love, free in it, unchangeable, infinite. What a covenant between him and Christ for all the seed, for everyone, wherein he undertakes all and the poor soul nothing. Now, Mel Dobinia has said, and see what you make of this, I'm at a loss to understand how those who doubt Cromwell's Christianity can explain his letters to his children. In the meantime, great events were brewing in the nation's capital. King Charles I was on a collision course with his parliament. He was uh, a short man, stood at about five foot four, and still retained a slight Scottish accent from his father. Charles was devout and principled, but rather distant, and because of that found it difficult to inspire loyalty in his closest associates. The quarrel between Charles and his parliament was complex, and different historians emphasise different elements, but I'd like to focus on two main strands. Firstly, there was his personal style of government. Like his father, who had written a book on the subject, The True Law of Free Monarchies, he believed that kings were accountable to God alone, and his style in consequence of that was aloof and paternalistic. And this did not suit the minor nobility and gentry who hoped for a partnership in government. They believed that their opinions ought to matter, and that the king had made a serious mistake in failing to consult them and ruling when he could without their advice. Both sides in the quarrel appealed to history. There were two rival theories of the history of England operating here. Each side had its own analysis of the past. Charles, for his part, (coughs) could point to the example of kings who had a short way with unruly subjects, who took too much upon themselves. His opponents invoked Magna Carta to prove their contention that there was a well-founded tradition in England that kings must rule by consent. And they referred pointedly to what they called the Norman yoke, arguing that the Norman conquest had obliterated an England where a sturdy yeomanry acclaimed a king who was drawn from their own ranks and who was little more than first among equals. Well, the issue that brought matters to a head was taxation. And then, as now, government was expensive. Parliament, however, was determined to insist on what it believed was its ancient right that no taxation should be levied until an acceptable programme of legislation had been agreed first. Charles, for his part, tried to circumvent that by ruling without Parliament for 11 whole years. 
and levying taxes that did not need the approval of Parliament. One of these was a tax called ship money, supposedly to um, equip the navy, but he went a bit further than normal and started levying this tax from counties that didn't have a coastline, counties like Berkshire. Now, the second more serious dimension to the quarrel between King and Parliament was Charles' religious policy. In 1633, he'd appointed a man named William Lord to the vacant see of Canterbury. Lord, like his royal master, was a little man, short in stature. Uh, just for your amusement, I might mention that because of that, uh, and because he was opposed by the uh, Puritan element in the country, you know that the word Lord in Old English means praise, don't you? Uh, glory, honour, and, and so on. You think of the old hymn, All glory, Lord, and honour to thee, Redeemer King. Well, there was a grace given at mealtimes in Puritan homes, um, give glory to God and little Lord to the devil. <laughs> Lord was an Arminian. Now, in the early 17th century, that term uh, was not used in quite the way it is now among evangelicals. It was used to describe an attitude to the place of tradition in church life. And in short, Lord wanted to reintroduce many pre-Reformation practices into the English church. And he began a systematic policy of restoring things like stained glass windows, crosses, even crucifixes, and priestly vestments. At the time of the Reformation, communion tables had been moved from the east end of church buildings right into the middle of the nave. Lord moved them back, reverted to the old uh, terminology of altar, had them railed off and elevated, lifted up, um, and Lord took genuine delight in ceremony and coined the phrase, the beauty of holiness, to describe his view of order. Now, the Puritans claimed that instead he was fixated on the holiness of beauty, seeing it the other way around. They believed that his policy was actually a sinister conspiracy to try to re-Catholicize the Church of England. And their suspicions were increased because every time there was a vacancy in a bishopric, Lord appointed one of his own supporters. So that little by little, the uh, church was increasingly packed with men of the same stamp as himself. It did not help that the king had married the French princess, Henrietta Maria, and had allowed her a private chapel where her own priests could celebrate Mass, the first time that Mass had been celebrated in England really since the Reformation. And as the Mass was viewed as inherently idolatrous, an insult to the finished work of Christ, this was regarded with something like horror. And memories, of course, were still fresh, of the Spanish Armada, the gunpowder plot, and many ministers of Puritan sympathies still wanted at that time to work within a national church if they could, but they felt that Lord and the King were being deliberately insensitive to their scruples. Their scruples about such things as wearing vestments or using the sign of the cross in baptism, and they felt that the King 
and Lord had created a climate where many of his best and most loyal subjects were feeling that their consciences were not respected. And this was the backdrop to the Puritan settlement of New England. Puritans felt that they were the victims of intensifying persecution. At one stage, Cromwell himself thought seriously about emigrating to the New World. A great many people just like him were doing exactly that. Uh, there were two periods, actually, where he thought about selling up and leaving England. The first was during the unhappy period in St. Ives, where he was simply farming another man's land in the early 1630s, and again in November 1641. Uh, and in an aside to a man named Falkland, Cromwell indicated his state of mind. He said uh, when something was going through Parliament that he was worried about, I would have sold everything I possess and never seen England more. Now, uh, historians sometimes like to play a game that begins, what if, and, and you can only imagine what if uh, in that year Cromwell had left the country and had never come back. Well, things came to a head when Charles tried to enforce Lord's policies on the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Reactions there were even more robust than they had been in England. The attempt to impose an Anglican prayer book and bishops on a Protestant church which saw these things as the thin end of a Roman wedge was disastrous. Almost as one man, the Scots framed the National Covenant of 1638. And this document, signed by many Scots nobles and ministers, in some cases in blood, was seen as a national covenant with the Almighty to defend their church against these heavy-handed impositions. Charles then tried to impose Lord's reforms by force, and this led to two short conflicts which are known as the Bishops' Wars, 1639 and 40. They led, in fact, to humiliating defeats for the king. In the meantime, Puritan opposition in England, Puritan opinion, sorry, in England was alarmed. The Puritans felt considerable sympathy, of course, with the Scots Covenanters. They hated the idea that they might end up being conscripted to fight their brethren north of the border, or even be obliged to pay taxes to fund a war with people whose scruples and sympathies they shared. Well, late in the year 1640, Charles summoned Parliament to raise money for his campaigns against the Scots. And this Parliament, which became known as the Long Parliament, it was called that because it continued for the best part of 13 years, was in no mood to support Charles' policies. And as the months passed, confidence broke down on both sides between the King and his Parliament. And Parliament became increasingly restive when it was rumoured that Charles meant to raise an army of Catholic Irish to enforce his policies. And it was in this atmosphere, I'm collapsing a lot of information into uh, a short period of time here, but it was in this atmosphere that trust broke down. Charles left his capital, convinced that London had become uncontrollable and that drastic measures were needed. In August 1642, he went to Nottingham 
and there raised his standard. Now, uh, the reason for that, uh, in the um, symbolism of the day, it meant that he was calling upon loyal subjects to rally to him. Uh, when a monarch raised his standards, he was basically saying, all loyal Englishmen come to me, the crown is in danger, rally to your king and his cause. Now, um, for those who like omens, the day was wet, the uh, royal standard was sodden with rain, and later in the day it fell over. <laughs> but Parliament reached the conclusion from this royal act that the king was in effect declaring war on his own people. That's how it was received in London and in what we, we call the home counties. Now, what of Cromwell by this stage? Well, he'd already served a brief term as one of the members of Parliament for Huntingdon in the Parliament of 1628 and 9, and by now he'd been elected as one of the members for Cambridge. Wiser parliamentary heads sometimes despaired of his tendency to impassioned outbursts. But he was beginning to acquire increasing recognition as one of a caucus of Puritan members of Parliament who seized the initiative in the years 1640-42. to 42. By this time he was already in his early 40s. He was a sturdy man of medium height. At that time medium height was probably about 5 foot 7 which would mean that by modern standards he'd be a little on the short side. He evidently had lovely eyes, but also had a prominent nose, which royalist cartoonists were later to lampoon with gusto. His complexion was rather florid, and he had three large warts, which helped to produce a face that you'd describe as rugged rather than handsome. Uh, later on, when he had his portrait painted, he insisted that the wart should be included, said he wouldn't pay a penny for it. Um, now, a royalist chronicler of the day, Philip Warwick, observed him in the House of Commons in November 1640 and had this to say. I came into the house well clad. We courtiers valued ourselves much upon our good clothes and perceived a gentleman speaking whom I knew not, very ordinarily apparelled, for it was a plain cloth suit which seemed to have been made by an ill country tailor. His linen was plain and not very clean, and I remember a speck or two of blood upon his little band. Obviously means he'd cut himself shaving, doesn't it? Uh, which was not much larger than his collar. His hat was without a hat band. His stature was of a good size. His sword stuck close to his side. His countenance swollen and reddish. His voice sharp and untunable, and his eloquence full of fervour. He was very much hearkened unto. About the same time, and probably just after the delivery of the same speech, Lord Digby, who also noted Cromwell's rather untidy appearance, uh, asked John Hamden who the speaker was. And John Hamden replied, That slovenly fellow which you see before us, who hath no ornament in his speech, I say that sloven, if we should come to have a breach with the king, which God forbid, in such a case, will be one of the greatest men in England. Well, that's uh, our first chapter. Let's now, in second place, consider Cromwell the soldier. When war broke out, Cromwell was almost 43. 
with no military experience behind him. And yet for all that he spent the first two-thirds of his life in obscurity, he was an instinctive soldier. The Fenland farmer, and now the parliamentary rough diamond, turned out to be a latent military genius. In a career that was clouded with ambiguities, it's his military achievements that are the most clear-cut. Even before hostilities got underway, he showed a capacity for decisive action. The Cambridge colleges, for instance, had been told to send their plate and their other valuables to the king so that he could use them to purchase munitions. Well, Cromwell rapidly assembled a troop of horse, waylaid the baggage train, and so saved £20,000 for Parliament's war effort. It was a risky manoeuvre. War had not yet broken out, and a nervous Parliament could simply have disowned his action as an irresponsible hothead acting on his own initiative. When it came, the early months of the Civil War were indecisive. The fact was that few living Englishmen had seen any kind of military action at all. There was no national tradition of a standing army, and both sides struggled to raise, equip, and especially to pay troops. The first battle of any consequence was at a place called Edge Hill, near Kyneton in Warwickshire, in October 1642. The king wanted to force a way through to London. Parliament tried to block his path. The battle was what you might best describe as a scrappy draw, but predictably both sides claimed victory afterwards. Cromwell was little more than a spectator. He arrived late, and he was still a junior figure in the parliamentary chain of command, but one aspect of the battle gave him food for thought. The royalist cavalry was led by the king's nephew, who was called Prince Rupert of the Rhine. At a key moment, it smashed through Parliament's lines and opened up the possibility of a complete rout. But the momentum of the charge was such that the royalist cavalry then thundered on and didn't stop. It kept going till it reached the village of Kyneton, and it then went on a looting spree. And Cromwell learned two lessons from this confused melee. Clearly, cavalry could prove decisive on the field of battle. If used properly, they could sway the outcome, but that also meant that control, that discipline on the field of battle was vital. So Oliver went away and spent the next month recruiting heavy cavalry of his own, which became the splendid regiment, which became the nucleus of Parliament's army of the Eastern Association. And he had two things uppermost in his mind. The first was to do with training and tactics. The parliamentary horse must not do what had happened to Edge Hill. They must keep together, even if that meant operating at a slightly slower speed so that they could retain their shape then their efforts would not be dissipated by disappearing over the horizon. Cromwell's cavalry was trained to operate not at a gallop, but at a fast trot, and to keep their lines well-dressed. But secondly, his recruiting policy was decidedly novel. This was not to be an army of feudal levies summoned by local magnates. He deliberately chose troopers with a personal stake in the conflict. People who believed that Parliament 
was acting in defense of evangelical religion. He willingly accepted soldiers from more modest backgrounds than was usual. Tenant farmers, the sturdy yeomanry of the Fen counties, put it this way, I had rather have a plain russet-coated captain that knows what he fights for and loves what he knows than that which you call a gentleman and is nothing else. I honour a gentleman that is so indeed. Now it's not surprising that Cromwell developed an easy rapport with the men of his command. He too was a plain russet-coated captain. And it also meant that some of his recruits came from strands of Puritanism that were still not entirely accepted. There was as yet no consensus that Baptists were at that time part of the evangelical mainstream. Many saw them as a dubious group outside the fringe of the evangelical spectrum. But Cromwell's response when somebody complained that he was recruiting such suspect material was robust. I but the man is an Anabaptist. Are you sure of that? Admit he be. Shall that render him incapable to serve the public? Sir, the state in choosing men to serve them takes no notice of their opinions. If they be willing faithfully to serve them, that satisfies. So to sum it up really, two questions were uppermost as Cromwell examined each recruit. Is he godly? Can he fight? And that was enough. And the new cavalry soon proved their worth in skirmishes at Grantham and at Gainsborough where they made a difficult withdrawal under fire. Cromwell's methods were vindicated at the decisive battle of Marston Moor in July 1644. It's not far outside of York. Uh, and the battlefield is uh, farmland to this day so if you find the monument uh, in between the two villages of Tockwith and Long Martin, uh, there's an information board and you can get a clear picture of how the battle must have worked out. Lord Newcastle, uh, that name will be familiar, uh, had created an army of his retainers. By the way, a certain local rivalry will be explained if I tell you that uh, Newcastle sided with the Crown during the Civil Wars and Sunderland sided with Parliament <laughs> well, Lord Newcastle had created a, an army of his retainers in the old feudal way, clothed them in white, and marched them off on the king's cause. He'd then been penned inside York by the parliamentary armies, working in collaboration with the Scots. Prince Rupert had come north to try to... Um, get Lord Newcastle out of York to relieve this siege, only to be drawn into battle between these two Yorkshire villages, Tockwith and Longmaston. Cromwell had spent the night before the battle in prayer at Knaresborough. Now, although the Royalists were outnumbered two to one, they began well and soon had the inexperienced parliamentary foot commanded by Lord Fairfax on the run. All but two regiments of the Scots had fled too. Oliver, in the meantime, was in the village of Tockwith, having a sword cut to his neck, bandaged. But on returning to the fray, he saw that the battle was almost lost, but mercifully his own splendid regiment were patiently waiting 
their lines well dressed, they hadn't moved anywhere, and they were just waiting for him to command them into action. And then the battle was turned as they made charge after ponderous charge. His training had worked. After each charge, they kept their shape and were able to wheel round and go into action again. His theory was working. And with ponderous, massive strength, instead of the wild fury of the royalist horse, the day was won at Marston Moor. The day ended, in fact, with Lord Newcastle's white coats refusing to yield and being slaughtered to a man. It's a tragedy to think that the white uniforms of the stubborn Geordies, not that that nickname was in use at that time, uh, became their shrouds. Marston Moore made Cromwell's reputation and earned him a nickname, by the way. Prince Rupert had asked at the beginning of the day, is old Ironsides there? As he looked across at the parliamentary army, and from then on, Cromwell was nicknamed Old Ironsides. The next morning, one of his duties was to write to his brother-in-law, a man named Valentine Walton, informing him of the death of his son, also called Valentine, who had died after an attempt to amputate a shattered leg. Now, bear in mind the way that uh, those who lose a son, or these days even a daughter, in somewhere like Iraq or Afghanistan, receive a telegram from the war office, well, it would be rather better to receive a handwritten letter of this sort. Sir, you know my trials this way. He was thinking of the deaths of his sons Robert and also a son called Oliver at the siege of Newport Pagnell earlier in the war. But the Lord supported me with this, that the Lord took him into the happiness that we all pant and live for. There is your precious child, full of glory, to no sin nor sorrow any more. Truly, he was exceedingly beloved in the army of all that knew him. He was a precious young man, fit for God. Well, Oliver Starr was now in the ascendant. After an indecisive battle at Newbury, he clashed with the parliamentary commander-in-chief, the Earl of Manchester. Manchester had never really come to terms with the psychological enormity of making war on his own sovereign. If we beat the king 99 times, he would be king still, and his posterity, and we his subjects still. But if he beat us but once, we should be hanged and our posterity undone. Well, here's Cromwell's retort. My lord, if this be so, why did we take up arms at the first? This is against fighting hereafter. If so, let us make peace, be it never so base. Now, Cromwell's forceful logic carried the day. Manchester was marginalised in December 1644 when Cromwell and his allies persuaded the Commons to pass what was called a self-denying ordinance. This forbade members of both houses from serving with the army. It was a high-risk strategy, actually, because it could have spelt the end of Cromwell's own military career. But his allies kept pressing the Commons to give him a series of short-term exemptions to keep him in post. Now, Parliament also agreed that the entire army should be new-modelled, as they used the phrase, along the lines of Cromwell's own regiment, the Eastern Association. And it meant that a new army was created, called the New Model Army. 
Uh, interestingly, uh, it began to identify itself by wearing a scarlet sash around the middle after they'd captured a supply of cloth uh, bound for royalist troops in the southwest. And that marked the beginning of English troops being identified by wearing scarlet, uh, which was the case right up to the late 19th century uh, when um, khaki uh, came into use as a kind of camouflage. Now, um, the royalist commander, Lord Digby, uh, derisively referred to it as the new noddle, uh, but in fact it soon gained an overwhelming victory at Naseby during Market Harborough. You pass right through the field of battle if you go along the A14, uh, soon after the point where the uh, M1 hits the M6, uh, and you'll see the signs there. And this victory confirmed Cromwell as the most effective general on the parliamentary side, and it also made him indispensable. Of course, it made Parliament's victory over the king certain too. What followed was a period of mopping up operations and siege warfare, until after the surrender of Oxford, the king then took refuge with the Scots, who handed him over as a prisoner to the parliamentarians when they left England in January 1647. Cromwell and most of his supporters were now passionately convinced that success on the field of battle meant that the Almighty had vindicated Parliament's cause, that God had arbitrated, that God had given a decisive ruling on the field of battle. Now, if Charles could accept that, some sort of accommodation might yet be possible. But the king, first from Holdenby Hall in Northamptonshire, and then from more secluded captivity in the Isle of Wight, was carrying out secret negotiations behind Parliament's back with the Scots, who had up till now been fighting on Parliament's side. And he promised them that he would respect their national covenant and guarantee the establishment of Presbyterianism in England if they would re-enter the war on his side. Now, as it turned out, he was lying through his teeth, as his son Charles II later proved to be, but they believed him. These royal manoeuvres convinced Oliver and other army leaders that there was no realistic hope of arriving at a workable compromise with the king. But, unfortunately, the Scots had invaded England on the basis of these negotiations. And the invading Scots had to be dealt with. And in a campaign of rare genius, he crossed the Pennines at speed, approximately on the line of what is now the A65 road, and attacked the base of the Scottish army they'd encamped in Preston. Now, amazingly, Cromwell came down on Preston from the north, Cutting, down, cutting off their line of retreat and effectively bottling them up in the town. The battle was fought in the modern suburbs of Fullwood. <coughs> it's interesting that most of the streets in that area are named after parliamentary generals in the battle. Turned out to be an emphatic victory. Well, a tense period followed. What was to be done with the king? Cromwell had reluctantly come to share the conclusion of many others in the army that Charles was not only a man of blood who had waged war on his own people and in doing so broken his coronation oath. 
He was also, secondly, a dissembler, a man who could not be trusted to negotiate in good faith. But he was a man whose heart God had hardened. He was another pharaoh. Had he not, for instance, plotted to bring down a foreign army, in this case the Scots, on his own people when, importantly, Providence had delivered an undeniable verdict at Naseby. Now, you may not share this line of reasoning, but that was the thinking uh, in the parliamentary army at the time. Now, of course, this was an acute dilemma for a Christian at the time. Was not Charles, for all his faults, the Lord's anointed? Now, this is how others saw it. What did David do when he was faced with Saul? Saul was unreliable. Saul was shifty. Saul was a man that you couldn't negotiate with. But on the other hand, many Puritans at the time agreed with Calvin's argument. The powers that be are ordained of God, and we must defer to them, we must obey. But sometimes, in some nations, the Almighty has not only ordained superior magistrates like monarchs, He has ordained inferior magistrates like parliaments. And arguing by analogy, in a family, when father comes home drunk and begins to beat mother, if there are teenage sons in the family, they normally owe obedience to their father. Of course they do. But in a setting like that, they have the duty, do they not, to grapple with their father and subdue him to prevent violence to their mother until such time as the drunkenness wears off and their father is in a better mind. Now, when God has ordained that there is a parliament as well as a king, surely if the king behaves with with unseemly madness and makes war on his own people, then the God-ordained parliament must prevent such effusion of blood. Well, where do you come down on this? There was already an emerging consensus in the army that Charles should be brought to account. And one of the most fateful prayer meetings in the whole of British history took place in April 1648. The General Council of the Army met at Windsor. Now surely, it was argued increasingly, the Scots' invasion of that year indicated God's displeasure with his people in England. And the time had come to seek God's face and determine the reasons. And as the meeting wore on, the conviction gained ground that the Lord was displeased that Parliament had even negotiated with the King the previous year. And there was a decisive intervention from a man named William Goff. He quoted Proverbs 1.23, Turn you at my reproof, says the Lord. And that scripture contains the warning that if the elect of God would not turn at God's reproof, he would laugh at their calamity. But if they did turn at his reproof, he would pour out his spirit once more upon them. So the meeting concluded with a resolution to renew the conflict with fresh vigour. And secondly, if ever the Lord brought us back again in peace, to call Charles Stuart to an account for that blood that he had shed. Now Oliver personally vacillated for some months over his decision lingering far longer than necessary, for instance, at the siege of a minor royalist stronghold at Pontefract. His presence there was hardly needed. It was only a very small uh, fortress, but it gave him a breathing space. 
Eventually, though, he concluded that he had all the guidance he needed. Why had God delivered the king into Parliament's hands if not to settle accounts with this persecutor of the godly? And addressing the commons on the 26th of December, 1648, he declared, If any man had moved this upon design, he should think him the greatest traitor in the world. But since providence and necessity had cast them upon it, he should pray God to bless their counsels. And the trial of the king began in Westminster Hall in January 1649. It was an event without precedent in English history. You can walk through Westminster Hall. It's part of the complex of the uh, Palace of Westminster. If you ever um, want to go and see the Houses of Parliament, uh, and you can go right, to the, and there's a little plaque in the floor that shows you where the king sat while he was on trial. Now, many people believed that the trial had no legitimacy whatever. Algernon and Sidney refused to serve as one of the judges. He put it this way. First, the king can be tried by no court. Secondly, no man can be tried by this court. Well, amazingly, Charles behaved with more resolution than at any other time in his life. Steadfastly refusing to acknowledge the court's right to try him, he acted with impeccable dignity and did much to create what became the cult of the royal martyr that is beloved of a certain type of high Anglican. His execution on the 30th of January, 1649, was a strangely muted affair. Now, by the way, there's no truth in the rumour that Cromwell later crept into the mortuary uh, and stood over the body of his fallen adversary saying, Oh, cruel necessity. Uh, I don't think uh, Cromwell would have gone near it. England, by the way, had now become a republic by default. The military situation, though, was still fluid. First of all, urgent action was required in Ireland where it was believed that the late king's heir, the young Charles II, could call upon a limitless supply of Catholic Irish to rally to his cause and recover his father's crown. The Irish campaign that followed, 1649-50, to 50, was an attempt essentially at a preemptive strike. It was largely a campaign of sieges, and for that reason it did not suit Oliver's preference for mobile warfare in open country. You can't fight a cavalry campaign against an army that's bottled up inside uh, castles. English attitudes were coloured by widespread rumours of terrible massacres in 1641 against the Protestant planter communities in the north of Ireland. An attempt really at ethnic cleansing by the Gallic natives against the incomers. Now, these rumours had been considerably exaggerated. There had been violent incidents, but uh, massacres is something of an overstatement. I think it's worth me departing from the script here, uh, by the way, to just mention that a recent reappraisal of Cromwell's role uh, in Ireland has been written by an Irishman named Tom Riley, uh, and it's given the intriguing title, Cromwell, Our Honourable Enemy. Uh, it's published by Brandon Press, and it's well worth obtaining and reading. Uh, I met the gentleman uh, when I went to uh, the places where one of the sieges happened. There were two sieges in particular, uh, one at a place called Drogheda, at the mouth of the River Boyne. It's only a few miles south of the border with Northern Ireland. The other, 
at Wexford. They both led to the sack of the cities concerned, widespread looting and slaughter. Uh, Of the two, the sack at Wexford was partly the result of a mistake, what we would call the fog of war nowadays. Surrender negotiations were taking place when one of the English commanders misunderstood the signals that were being given and uh, unleashed his troops who ran amok. A Drogheda uh, nationalist Republican propaganda based on Jesuit accounts has always portrayed events there as a massacre of the native Irish by Cromwell's troops. It was not anything of the kind. The defenders of Drogheda were mostly English royalists. And that means, in fact, that native Irish uh, people, uh, speaking Irish Gaelic, uh, would have been rather amused spectators watching as two armies of English Uh, went about knocking seven bells out of each other. Well, ironically, in both England and Scotland, the soldiers of the new model army had an excellent reputation for refraining from plunder and taking advantage of the local population. Cromwell is the only English general to have subjugated Ireland so completely that continuing resistance is slight, And I think that's a large part of the reason for his reputation in Ireland. He succeeded uh, in subduing the place. And his reputation has never recovered there. This, despite evidence of numerous acts of personal clemency to defeated enemies and even to Roman Catholic clergy. In the meantime, Charles II had landed in Scotland in June 1650 and set out to woo the Scots with promises that he would respect the National Covenant. As one Presbyterian minister was to reflect later on, Charles sinfully complied with what we most sinfully pressed upon him. No sooner had Oliver returned from Ireland than a lightning campaign was needed to quell the Scots. He hoped for a peaceful issue. Unlike Catholic Ireland, as he put it, God hath a people here, fearing his name, though deceived. Now, in saying though deceived, he meant with reference to the issue of church government. They, of course, would have returned the compliment as far as their view of him was concerned. Um, As Antonia Fraser has it, Cromwell was pathologically reluctant to accept that two groups of the elect were really intended to fight each other and that for the second time. The decisive moment came on the 3rd of September 1650 with the English outmaneuvered and outnumbered two to one by Scots who'd taken the high ground above Dunbar. And what followed was a stroke of genius. Under the cover of night, Cromwell made a tricky crossing of a ravine in complete secrecy and next morning struck at the heart of the Scots' positions. It was the crowning glory of a remarkable career, brilliant, audacious, a victory against the odds. But there's a sad dimension to it, and I don't think we can see it any other way. Two armies, each largely composed of evangelical believers, had come to push a pike on the blood-soaked turf of Dunbar, and both armies sang their metrical psalms as they went about their grim business. Now this, incidentally, was the first battle in, military, in British military history for which a medal was struck 
for all ranks. A few more months were needed to pacify Scotland. The citizens of Edinburgh were pleased at the church-going habits of the English troops, but noted that they did not express their appreciation of sermons by groaning, as the Scots did, but by humming. Uh, At one point, a clergyman in Glasgow named Zachary Boyd decided to give Cromwell a piece of his mind by delivering an impassioned harangue. The English commander got his own back with an extempore prayer that lasted three hours. (laughs) The Scottish campaign was not without its frustrations, The godly in the northern kingdom were not impressed by Cromwell's view that victory at Dunbar meant that the Almighty had given decisive arbitration. You see Cromwell using this argument again. God has vindicated Um, arbitration this time between England and Scotland, between Parliament and Crown, between independent congregationalist desires for liberty of conscience on the one hand and Presbyterian prescriptivism on the other. Archibald Johnston, Lord Warriston, tartly commented on Cromwell's insistence that he was an instrument of providence by arguing that the same could be said for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Cromwell found that his sincerity was regularly questioned north of the border. The fact that he was inclined to wear his heart on his sleeve meant that he was dismissed as a greeting devil. The uh, vernacular means a weeping devil. He'd also suffered a protracted period of illness during the Scottish campaign and his robust constitution was never quite the same after it. Now 52, he was an old man by the standards of his time. As he wrote to Elizabeth the morning after Dunbar, I assure thee, I grow an old man and feel infirmities of age marvellously stealing upon me. Would my corruptions did as fast decrease. In other words, he means that, you know, if only I was getting the better of my fallen nature uh, as quickly. The Second Civil War was brought to a neat conclusion exactly a year after Dunbar when Charles made a desperate foray as far south as Worcester only for his forces to be surrounded and annihilated with clinical efficiency, the young monarch escaping to the continent. And Worcester marks the end of Cromwell's career as a general. Though he never left the British Isles, he deservedly occupies a high rank among the great generals of history, all the greater because he rose from obscurity. Well, that brings me next to uh, what we might term Cromwell as the first Englishman. The first Englishman. Cromwell was not a Republican at heart. He never set out to establish a Republic. But events had made him the most significant presence in the new and shaky Republic known as the Commonwealth. He'd risen to a prominence that no one could challenge. He was the natural person to fill the power vacuum. He alone could bridge the chasm between Parliament and Army. And in the immediate aftermath of Naseby, A radical movement had grown up in the army known as the Levellers. These hoped that victory in the war... By the way, one of their leaders was a man named John Lilburn who came from Sunderland. Uh, These hoped that victory in the war would mean an opportunity to start afresh with a new kind of England altogether, where the smallest he 
would have a life to live as well as the greatest he. They proposed a parliament of 400, elected every two years on a much more democratic franchise than had yet been known. Vigorous debates had taken place at Putney between senior generals, including Cromwell, and representatives of the levellers. But Oliver was really a social conservative at heart and could not bring himself to embrace the leveller programme. Some levellers thought that this was rank hypocrisy on his part. They said this of him. He will lay his hand on his breast, elevate his eyes and call God to record. He will weep, howl and repent, even while he doth smite you under the fifth rib. Cromwell, however, had been in a difficult position throughout the long wars against the crown. Like any revolution, this one had produced a crop of radicals who wanted to push reform even further than the parliamentarians of 1642 had envisaged. And by the time he became protector of the Commonwealth, he was an old man by the standards of the time, worn out by his campaigns, and he never rediscovered the clarity of the battlefield in the murky world of politics. He found it harder to observe the leadings of providence there. In the end, he resigned himself to trying, as he put it, like the good constable to keep the peace of the parish. He died in 1658, so his rule as Lord Protector was brief. It's intriguing to think that had he lived another ten years and been followed by a competent successor, with Charles II marginalised on the continent, England might have been a republic yet. As it is, we just have some tantalising glimpses of what might have been. In one area, his government was a resounding failure. He tried without success to create a workable system of government for the infant republic. Four parliaments were called, only to be dismissed rapidly each in turn. The first was a sincere but counterproductive experiment to try to produce a non-partisan government of evangelicals, a parliament of saints. It was nicknamed the Barebones Parliament after one of its more colourful figures, a man named Praise God Barebones, or sometimes Praise God Barbon, he's sometimes called. Now, by the way, there's... um, an unsubstantiated story that this man had two brothers, one called Christ came into the world to save bare bones, and the other was named, if Christ had not died, thou hadst been damned bare bones. <laughs> you dread to think their mother calling the boys in for tea when they'd been out <laughs> playing, don't you? The bare bones parliament more seriously, is a cautionary reminder that it's rather simplistic to suppose that a legislative body composed entirely of born-again Christians, and sometimes people express the longing for that, uh, that it will agree on anything at all except the way of salvation. (laughs) The failure of the Commonwealth parliaments may be attributed in part to poor management, but it left a worrying hiatus With the abolition of the monarchy, the new regime was exposed all along to the charge that it lacked legitimacy, and the only way to confer legitimacy on new institutions is to give stability over a period of time, but that 
period of time was not forthcoming. Now, his religious policy, on the other hand, was the greatest of his peacetime achievements, and it's a pity it didn't last. It was a noble, far-sighted attempt to produce a workable national church that would be genuinely evangelical. When the Civil War had broken out in 1642, most English Puritans had been Presbyterian in their sympathies. The passage of time, however, had produced a situation which was far from monochrome. New groups had emerged. Cromwell himself was an independent, agreeing in all respects with Presbyterians except over their system of church government. The yeoman service they'd rendered during the war had also earned a cautious respect for the particular Baptists. That's to say the Calvinistic Baptists despite the disturbing implications of their distinctive doctrine of believers' baptism. But further out toward, and in some cases beyond the evangelical periphery, were other groups, such as the Quakers, and yet more exotic sects, the Ranters, the Fifth Monarchy Men, the Seekers, and the Muggletonians. I wish I had time to tell you about the Muggletonians. <laughs> Faced with this situation, Cromwell had two chief concerns. The first concern places him squarely in the mainstream of Puritan thought ever since the Reformation. Basically, he simply longed to see the rise of a godly nation. And that would be secured through what he would have termed the Reformation of manners. And that would require, as far as could be achieved, a preaching minister in every parish. The second concern, and that was not so much... uh, widely shared at that time by his contemporaries, was his burden for liberty of conscience. Now, Cromwell's sometimes portrayed by modern authors as a pioneer in the field of religious toleration. He wouldn't quite have phrased it that way himself. In the 17th century, toleration was a dirty word. It stood not for an edifying principle, but for an impious policy to grant a toleration was to make an expedient concession to wickedness. You tolerate sin, you tolerate heresy. Well, heresy took souls to hell. Insufficient rigour might provoke the Almighty. Cromwell's concern was a bit more restricted than the way that we understand religious toleration. His experiences during the war had afforded ample proof that the godly were not confined to one party, to one way. But a common enemy, in this case the the king, and a shared peril often unites men of different persuasions. And Cromwell's dispatches from the siege of Bristol in 1645 noted approvingly, Presbyterians, independents, all had here the same spirit of faith and prayer. The same presence and answer. Now what he meant by that, the same sense of the presence of God. The same sense that our prayers are being answered. They agree here. No, no names of difference. Pity it is that it should be otherwise anywhere. And by the end of his military decade, Cromwell had become not so much a promoter or defender of the sects as a man enamoured of godliness but indifferent to its forms provided they fell within the limits of mainstream, evangelical, Trinitarian Protestantism. 
Now that needs some qualification. Cromwell's instinctive sympathies lay within the spectrum of Protestant opinion that later became what was called old dissent. What became after the Restoration, the Presbyterians, the Independents and the particular Baptists. Now in case you're thinking, what about the Anglicans then? Well, Anglicanism, what was known in his day as prelacy, it pre presented an acute dilemma. It was undeniable to Cromwell that some godly people, what he would have called painful ministers, now the word painful then meant painstaking in, in modern terminology, uh, some such men had Anglican sympathy, sympathies. Oliver, in fact, so admired the personal godliness of Archbishop Usher of Armagh that he permitted Anglican rites at his funeral, even though the Book of Common Prayer had been outlawed early in the Long Parliament. But Anglicanism was not, within the Commonwealth period, viewed as one form of Protestantism among several others. It was viewed as royalism at prayer. We need to see that. The king had gone to war for the sake of Anglicanism in his prayer book. He'd persecuted the godly for the sake of prelacy in that prayer book. It was a much more loaded issue uh, to Cromwell and his supporters than it would be to evangelical people today. So, to sum up, Cromwell's essential concern was the unity of the godly. Now, of course, the godly, on the other hand, had a distressing propensity for mutual antipathy. As Cromwell put it, every sect saith, Oh, give me liberty, but give that liberty to him, and to his power he will not yield the same liberty to anybody else. Truly, that's a thing that ought to be very reciprocal. And Cromwell saw his work as to preserve the churches from destroying one another to keep all the godly of several judgments in peace, because like men falling out in the street, they would run their heads one against another. He saw his role as being a good constable to part them and keep them in peace. Now for a man of action who was not a natural scholar, Cromwell had a good grasp of theology. He was able to correct fifth monarchists about the identity of the Antichrist. Uh, basically, they thought that he was the Antichrist. And, uh, uh, he was able to um, tell them that he wasn't. He was able to um, disagree with Quakers about the nature of the inner light. They thought it was inside every one of us. He saw the only light that God has given us in the Scriptures. His religious policy took shape when the Vice-Chancellor of Oxford University, John Owen, was asked to head a committee that proposed a solution. Two commissions were set up. The first commission of Triers, established in March 1654, had the task of appointing ministers for every vacant parish. And applicants would be assessed in terms of their spirituality, conduct, knowledge and ability to preach. Ordination, the ordinance made quite clear, did not come into it. The objective was simply to ensure that where financial maintenance was available, proper persons should labour in the work of the gospel. And the 38 members of this committee included Presbyterians, Independents and Baptists. And a parish could decide whether it wanted 
a Presbyterian, an Independent, or a Baptist as its minister. The other commission of ejectors established later that year had to supervise and, if necessary, remove from the ministry anyone who was unfit. A doctrinal test was provided by 15 fundamentals based on the premise that none who believed that they could seek God's will elsewhere than in the Scripture was fit to preach the gospel. And that therefore meant that Roman Catholics, who believed that church tradition had a role, or um, people like Quakers, uh, who in that day were the equivalent of our charismatics, who saw a direct role for the Holy Spirit outside the Word of God, or at least that type of our charismatic, who saw a role outside the Word of God, uh, could not uh, have a place in the parish ministry. Now, sadly, this noble experiment did not last. It was terminated when a vengeful Anglican establishment rode in on the back of a restored monarchy. But Richard Baxter's mature judgment was that for all their occasional mistakes, the two commissions, as he put it, did abundance of good to the church. Many thousands of souls blessed God for the faithful ministers whom they let in and grieved when the prelatists afterwards cast them out again. On a personal level, Cromwell's patience and kindness do him great credit. He patiently endured several harangues from the Quaker leader, George Fox, and when the unbalanced Quaker visionary, James Naylor, was imprisoned in Bristol, he sent gifts of money to him. When the Unitarian, John Biddle, was imprisoned for blasphemy on the Scilly Isles, Cromwell sent him allowance for food and medicine. Even the Roman Catholic community had a quieter period than it had known for over a century. The recusancy laws which forbade Roman Catholic worship remained in force, but with Cromwell's benign influence at the helm, a blind eye was often turned as long as masses were discreet. It was also during the Commonwealth period that Jews first settled in England uh, for the first time since the reign of King John. Now, while this never became public policy, it took place de facto, if not de jure, for the robustly evangelical reason that the best way to ensure the conversion of the Jews and therefore hasten the second coming was to readmit the Jews to one of the few countries in all the world where faithful preaching was to be had. Now, a worthy attempt was also made to reform the legal system. The number of capital offences was scaled down so that only two remained on the statute book, murder and treason. Compare that with the early 19th century where there were over 200 capital offences on the statute book. A scale of charges was introduced for lawyers so that the poor were not denied access to justice and lawyers were told not to intimidate the public by deliberately overwriting their documents in voluminous legal terminology. Um, education was encouraged and an attempt made to establish a college in Durham that anticipated the formation of Durham University by something in the region of um, 200 years. Uh, there were other notable policies, including the attempt to develop a truly Protestant foreign policy, support for the persecuted Waldensian evangelicals of northern Italy, war with Spain, uh, which included the successful acquisition of Jamaica and the attempt to build 
a coalition of states in Northern Europe. A formidable navy was built up under the control of the gruff Puritan Admiral Robert Blake. But we must move on. In May 1657, Cromwell made his most important and arguably his most disastrous uh, decision as protector, depending on how you look at it. He refused Parliament's offer of the Crown. An impressive case could have been built for acceptance on pragmatic grounds. A submission which was known as the Humble Petition and Advice set out to commend the title and office of a king in this nation. As that a king first settled Christianity in this island, that it had been long received and approved by our ancestors, who by experience found it to be consisting with their liberties, that it was a title best known to our laws, most agreeable to their constitution and to the temper of the people. Accepting the crown would also confer legitimacy on his regime and ensure its permanence. Every other civil war that had ever been fought in England had been fought about who should wear the crown. And if the young man on the continent were to return after the Lord Protector's death, what would prevent his taking vengeance on Oliver's descendants? Well, after adopting what he called a waiting posture for some weeks, and after intense lobbying on both sides of the issue, Oliver refused. So, King Oliver I was never crowned in Westminster Abbey. What swayed the matter was his belief in providence. Had not the Almighty, partly through his agency, as he put it, abolished the title and style of monarch in England. Well, the parallels between Israel's escape from bondage in Egypt and England's deliverance from a persecuting monarch were clear to him at any rate. The danger of sinning, much as Achan had done, and blighting the future of a whole nation were playing on his mind. And in a reference to Joshua 6.26, he said, I would not seek to set up that that providence hath destroyed and laid in the dust, I would not build Jericho again. Well, it's time to wrap the story up. Had King Oliver been crowned, his reign would have been all too short. In August 1658, it became clear that the Lord Protector was in decline. His favourite daughter, Betty Claypole, had died, and his grief was intense. Again, he took comfort from Philippians. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. But in turn, he succumbed to malaria, septicemia, and a trying urinary infection caused by the stone. His spleen was supurating. And on the 3rd of December, on the anniversary of his great victories at Dunbar and Worcester, and in his own 60th year, the man whom... Christopher Hill described as God's Englishman, gave up the ghost. He died, secure in the faith that had sustained him when he was only a tenant farmer, eking out a precarious living on land that he rented from someone else. The faith that sustained him through personal tragedies and in vigorous manhood as a soldier and statesman. Among his last words were these, Lord, I am but a miserable and wretched creature. I'm in covenant with thee through grace. It's not my design to drink or to sleep, but my design is to make what haste I can to be gone.
And ever since that time, the plain, russet-coated captain has lived in the presence of the one king that he knew he could trust. They say that no man is a hero to his valet. Well, John Maidstone, Cromwell's valet, said at the time of his death, a larger soul hath seldom dwelt in a house of clay. Just as a little postscript, the Commonwealth lasted for just two more years. Charles II was restored to his father's throne in 1660, and a restored monarchy and an Anglican church, restored along with it, began to take its revenge. All of the men who had signed Charles' death warrant were those who were living, were hunted down, put on trial and executed. Cromwell's body was disinterred. His head was hacked off and put on a pike staff outside Westminster Hall. It's pleasing to think that after passing through many pairs of hands as a slightly bizarre trophy, it's now buried outside the chapel of his old college, Sydney Sussex in Cambridge. Uh, his body is probably... Uh, at the site of the old Tyburn tree in London, which is now marked by Marble Arch. You can find a memorial plaque in a traffic island very close to it. There's an alternative theory that it's somewhere in Yorkshire. I don't give much credence to that. Well, for years, Cromwell's reputation suffered at the hands of royalist historians until it began to recover due to the generous tributes of Thomas Carlyle. In a recent poll of the men of the millennium, he came in the top half dozen. Now, in the final decades of the 19th century, it was proposed to enhance the House of Commons with a series of statues of the monarchs of England. But at that time, the whole island of Ireland was still part of the United Kingdom, and there were complaints from the hundred or so members of Parliament who represented Irish constituencies. They did not want a statue of Oliver inside the House of Commons. But then, in his tercentenary year, 1899, it was finally agreed to place a statue, a fine statue by Hamor Thornycroft, outside the House of Commons, and there it stands at College Green. It's been there ever since, and you can see it. It's curious to think that during the Blitz, when fire and explosives rained on England's capital, that the effigies of all her monarchs were behind walls of stone, but outside stood the effigy of the Lord Protector, dressed as a colonel of horse, sword in one hand and Bible in the other. His back to Parliament, not the Parliament that he knew, of course, it was rebuilt after a fire in the 1850s, but uh, there he was facing the enemies of England, stout and ready. He would have liked that had he known about it. He would also have read much significance into the fact that uh, although the building itself was scarred by shrapnel, uh, his statue did not receive a single scratch from <coughs> enemy action. And with that, uh, I'll just conclude with the observation that you've been a very patient audience. much indeed, Phil. I think we can perhaps have one or two questions. Um, 
if there are any. They're not compulsory, but if anybody would like to ask a question, please indicate. Is it right that John Bernier was in the New Model Army? And if so, was, was his conversion due to, you know, the leadership there? Cromwell? Question about John Bunyan. Was he in the Model Army? Well, he served in the parliamentary armies. Uh, we've got to get terminology correct. Uh, not all of the parliamentary armies were part of the new model army. The army was new modelled from 1645. Um, and uh, uh, Bunyan was only involved at a fairly local level near his home in Bedford. Uh, he took part in actions around Newport Pagnell, not far from where he lived. Uh, interestingly, Bunyan's pastor, John Gifford, uh, was uh, also a soldier. I think it's fair to say that Bunyan's experiences as a soldier uh, gave him a lot of material for his book, The Holy War. Uh, it furnished him with a certain amount of uh, understanding about how the wars of his own time were conducted. Uh, and, you know, certainly he saw action. Uh, I don't think we can place too much more than that on it, but it might interest you to know that Evangelical Press have recently published a fine new biography of the life of John Bunyan by Mrs. Faith Cook. Uh, I completed reading it about three weeks ago. I think that Mrs. Cook has made an excellent job of it. It's a real page-turner. It's wonderfully readable. Christmas is coming. Uh, it will cost you about 15 quid, uh, but you won't regret a penny of it uh, because, uh, and, and in fact, it will whet your appetite to go back to Pilgrim's Progress uh, and the Holy War she, and anything else that Bunyan has written. She's um, done all her homework and she makes Bunyan himself very accessible uh, and it will thrill you to the core to realise that that good man spent a third of his whole life in prison. Bunyan was really a victim of that period after the Civil War ended and the persecution that came upon um, Baptist people uh, as a result of the way that uh, royalists took their revenge once that war was over. Thank you. What about people in outer darkness on my left? <laughs> They've been there very patient. Maybe somebody there would like to. I don't have to, but please feel you can. Front row here, Peter. Uh, King Charles I was anointed uh, by God uh, and his father, James VI, James I of England. Uh, so... Certainly King James believed as much evidence that he was a direct blood descendant of old King David. I'm not hearing everything that our brother is saying. Um, could, could we what, could, have could the microphone just, a little closer? Uh, King, King Charles and his father, King James I, both were uh, crowned, uh, they were anointed with oil in an Israelitish ceremony uh, and certainly... Uh, James believed he was a direct blood descendant of King David. So how on earth did uh, a Bible believer like Cromwell uh, 
arranged to have his head chopped off, you know, when he was anointed by God. Uh, and why did he think that parliamentarians were somehow anointed when no oil touched any of their, their heads? Did you all get that, more or less? The scriptures tell us that the powers that be are ordained of God. Now, uh, the powers that be, depending on which piece of real estate we occupy, may in some cases be monarchs, but they may in some other cases not be monarchs. We may, for instance, be the citizens of a republic. Republics already existed uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, The Netherlands was a republic at that time, known as the United Provinces. Uh, The um, inhabitants of the Netherlands, which, by the way, was a Protestant power, were not in the habit of anointing anybody. Now, you you wouldn't tell me, I imagine, that uh, that was an illegitimate state because the ritual of anointing was not practised there. Uh, And... uh, Uh, I believe you would uh, nevertheless argue that the people in that land who rebelled against the um, Spanish tyranny that was exercised against them when the Dutch provinces were under the control of Spain uh, were, um, uh, you know, that the citizens of what became the free northern Netherlands owed a duty of obedience to their republican heads of state uh, who, who knew nothing of the ritual of anointing. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure where you're, where you're going with that, you see. Um, the, the way that um, the 17th century parliamentarians understood it is that in England and in France, and in several other countries at the time, the powers that be, as they then existed, included senior magistrates. The term magistrate then didn't mean a minor legal official, as it means in in the United Kingdom now, but it simply meant a ruler. A senior magistrate, which included a monarch, but there were also junior magistrates included, uh, including parliaments. Um, The French had one, uh, other countries did too. And that if a monarch exceeded his authority, his God-given authority, and began to persecute his own people, then the junior magistrate had the right, the God-given duty, to try to restrain him. Now, uh, the problem then arose, of course, what what did you do if if the monarch didn't come round to a better mind? Uh, You know, if he refused eventually to see sense. Uh, That is when the rubber hit the road, uh, as you might say. Uh, I I don't think anybody was unduly troubled that nobody had anointed a parliament. Uh, I I don't quite see uh, that it's the the, the act of anointing is is simply a symbolic recognition, uh, a symbolic act which indicates the... uh, Yeah... (coughs) 
Now, there's, there's no doubt that it was a sensitive issue for 17th century Christians, and Christians came down on, on both sides of, of the issue at that time. Uh, I, I tried to indicate that in the paper. Um, you, you might remember me pointing out that some said that the trial of the king was simply illegitimate, that no court could try a king, not at all. Uh, some saw a parallel between David's attitude to King Saul in the Old Testament, uh, and therefore that believers must simply bear with the actions of a bad king, uh, that if the king was a tyrant, uh, that they simply had to live with his tyranny and, and must, must abide it. Uh, but others would have argued that if England had a parliament... Presumably it had a parliament by God's appointment. Uh, and what is a parliament for, if, if not to seek to restrain the actions of an evil monarch who was persecuting and even making war upon his own people? Uh, and there is where the difficulty arose. Now, um, much of this, incidentally, comes from John Calvin. Um, I think it's book four of the Institutes, chapter 40, where the argument is developed. Um, the French Huguenot thinker, uh, Duplessis Mornay, in a book called Vindicii contra Tyrannos, the Latin means vindication against the tyrants. Uh, Samuel Rutherford, the Scots Covenanter, in his book Lex Rex, uh, which essentially argues the law is above the king. You know, that even though the king might be ordained of God, that he's not, that does not, uh, give him carte blanche to violate the laws of God in his rule of the people. Uh, now, it was a considerable difficulty for 17th century people, and, and Christians came down on, on both sides of the issue. And it's a tender issue for Christians even today. Uh, but you, you mustn't think, by the way, that the execution of the king was all Cromwell's doing. Uh, the, the way that you phrased your question to me, sir, more or less suggested that you appear to think so. Uh, the king was put on trial by a court. Cromwell did not sit on the court, and he was not a member of the court. Uh, he, did, um, he was one of the signatories to the death warrant, but he was one of about 20 signatories to the death warrant. So uh, at that time, Cromwell was simply one of two or three senior generals in the parliamentary army. So it's, it's uh, a complete misrepresentation to think that uh, um, Charles' trial and subsequent execution were all the work of one man, and that one man was Oliver Cromwell. Um, now, I think it will always be the case, partly because English people still have a tender affection for their monarchy, uh, that evangelical Christians in England will often find this a hurdle because although Cromwell was not individually, singly and personally responsible for the death of the king, he did approve of it. And, and that will um, cause a problem for some believers. Equally, ask yourself... Had you been alive at the time, what would you have done about Charles? What would you have done in 1642? Which side would you have been on at Marston Moor? Or would you have felt that it was wrong to go to war with the king at all? 
And the same issue was being acted out north of the border in Scotland. The Stuart monarchy was not all that great. Something was happening north of the border which became known as the Killing Times, where many tens of thousands of godly people were done to death because of this monarchy that we're talking about. Uh, And, uh, you know, should people who behave in that way be held completely unaccountable because of a spoonful of anointing oil? Should they be completely untouchable because of that? Now, Thomas Carlyle uh, said that Oliver Cromwell had performed a valuable service in the long term for the cause of the development of a constitutional monarchy in the British Isles. He taught kings that they had a joint in their necks. (laughs) Uh, It meant, you see, that when the monarchy was eventually restored, that monarchs were never able to get away with what they had got away with in the past. I hope that's of some help. Uh, I, I think even to this day, uh, evangelical Christians will come down on either side of the issue as to whether uh, Parliament should have gone to war with the Crown at all and whether having defeated the King in battle, the King should have been put on trial or not. But if the King hadn't been put on trial, there was no way of negotiating with him in good faith. Not that King. <laughs> 